I'm Alexia Russell and welcome to The Detail's Long Read. This week, the first story in a series published on newsroom.co.nz called Tarafati's Trauma on the slow destruction and devastating impact of the pine industry on the region. It's called The Colonial Cul-de-Sac, Land Loss, Land Use and the Devastation Left Behind. It's written and read here by Newsroom's Māori Issues editor, Aaron Smale. Aaron goes back to his grandmother's hometown and finds a community weighed down by weather disasters and decisions of the past that have left a region broken. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Let me ask you first, what's behind this series? Well, obviously, Gabriel, Cyclone Gabriel was a massive event and, you know, it was covered extensively by all the media. As a reporter, I had covered weather events, as most reporters do, and I knew that, you know, the coverage would last for a limited period of time and then the industry would sort of move on to something else. And I knew that there were a whole lot of issues that were affecting that region and had affected it for a very long time. And Gabriel was just making those issues worse. There were images of slash on the beaches. Well, where did that slash come from? Who were the companies that owned the trees that debris was coming from? So there were a whole lot of layers to the story that I knew weren't really being explored. There wasn't time in a news event like that. And so I deliberately kind of held off and decided that, right, I'm going to dig in and find out what's going on here. So these are your people, but you didn't grow up there. Why now do you have, obviously, this deep connection to the land? Well, just by way of background, I mean, I was adopted. I didn't know anything about my own heritage. I had some vague scraps of information that I was Māori, and it wasn't until I was in my teens and then in my adulthood that I tracked down family members, including my birth parents, And it's been quite a long journey back, if you like, to try and uh, piece together my identity, I suppose you could say, and that's a work in progress. And over the years, I've used my career as a journalist as a bit of a pretense to visit that region and try and understand, you know, where my grandmother grew up, where my great-grandparents were from. And it's, yeah, it's been a long journey. Um, But over the years, I've made that trip a few times. Uh, So I was familiar in a very kind of superficial way, I suppose, with the the region. But going back after Gabriel, it was just, you know, the the community has been hollowed out in many ways over decades. But it was still a beautiful place. But what had happened with the Slash in particular, it just trashed the environment. And that to me was extremely devastating to see that. And you could hear the sort of trauma in people's voices when they were talking about it. And so I felt an obligation in in my role to elevate those stories, I guess you could say, because it's a region that is isolated. It's one of the poorest um, regions in the country. The communities there don't have a lot of leverage in terms of political power, if you like. And it's a region that's easy to ignore. What's been the reaction of the people there, both to your arrival and sort of welcoming you and to the publication of these um, sort of essays, aren't they? Yeah, yeah they start drifting into editorialising in places. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because people, you know, on the coast are hospitable to whoever you are. 
But as soon as they hear that you are from that area, and as soon as you start mentioning your family names, their whole demeanour just changes, you know. It's kind of a strange thing for me because, you know, they probably know more about my family than I do. And the, so the reaction is, is always one of like, oh, cuss. <laughs> and it's, it's a, um, a kind of disarming in many ways. The reaction, it's only starting to filter through to the stories, is just, yeah, real gratitude because they have been bearing this destruction for a long time. And many of them have been trying to advocate for their communities in various ways, and they have been. Um, but to be, I guess, have those voices elevated is, yeah, it, it means a lot, I think. And what's your I hope? hope? <laughs> Speaking of hope, what is your hope from this series? The story covers one of the, I guess, angles and one of the, the issues that I raise is that the, the geology, the, the landscape of this area is unique and it is extremely vulnerable to erosion. It's one of the most erosion-prone areas in the world, not just New Zealand. And the decisions that have been made about land use in that area have not always taken that into account. And there's been a lot of decisions being made that are now proving to be extremely destructive, whether it was clearing the indigenous forest or trying to establish pastoral farming there, then that wasn't working, so let's put pine trees in there. That worked when the pine trees were standing, but when you start cutting them down, well, there's going to be problems. And I guess one of my hopes is that, you know, as I said before, this region is its easy to ignore or to overlook or to forget about. And those decisions just kind of keep sort of drifting on. People make decisions... And then the consequences sort of come back to bite the communities that live there. And But because they don't have a loud enough voice to be heard on what's happening, the, those decisions just sort of drift on. And when you've got probably about half a dozen major uh, overseas-owned companies that own something like 80% or more of those of that forestry, Who's benefiting from that forestry? It's, you know, there's limited benefits and uh, economic advantage to those living there. All the advantages, all the revenue, most of the revenue is going out of the country. One company that I uh, look at, Ernslaw, they made 70 million last year. They also were paid out in carbon credits, something like 50 million in one year. That's coming out of somebody's pocket. And, you know, we're going to have to buy carbon credits because we're not, in the foreseeable future, going to meet our targets in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And so the New Zealand taxpayer is going to have to foot the bill. This affects all of New Zealand. It doesn't just affect the East Coast. And yet, as you say, it's out of the way. It's not on the way to anywhere. Is this where the title comes from, the colonial cul-de-sac? Well, Yeah. I'm sort of being a little bit ironic there because it's like we've, you know, colonisation started this process and we've come, we've ended up down this dead-end street. Do we turn around and, and sort of try and find another pathway forward or do we just try and continue to bulldoze down this same path? 
Well, that's fantastic, Aaron. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's hear you reading your story, The Colonial Cul-de-Sac, Land Loss, Land Use and the Devastation Left Behind. You know you're there when you catch a glimpse of the red roof of the church against the aqua blue of the sea. State Highway 35 snakes along ridges and down through gullies, and you have to have your wits about you, even more so now with great chunks of the East Coast Road missing. After Tolaga Bay, you pass through Mangatuna and catch the first glimpse of Mount Hukurangi, the peak of Ngāti Paro, and the legendary resting place, so Paro has it, of Maui's waka. It was also the peak Ngāti Paro's rangatira Tikani Takiro referenced when he declined the offer of the Māori kingship. He said, My kingship comes from my long line of ancestors. My mountain Hikurangi is not one that moves but one that remains steadfast. He needed no other title. Then you start to descend State Highway 35 again, and the red roof and the blue sea come into view, with Marotiri Peak rising on the left. The glimpse is momentary, but this time the turquoise sea has a beige fringe along the coast. Something is not right. The town is quiet. I park at the bottom of the small hill, where Tuatini Marae is perched, and walk up a slight rise, and through the gate to the urupa that fans out around the church. My great-grandparents, Cyrus and Wikitoria Tafara, are buried almost directly in front. The headstones are nothing flash. Some dried lawn clippings obscure the old boy's name, so I wipe it down. 1958 he passed, two years after losing his wife. There must have been close to 100 grandchildren. Their descendants would now number in the thousands. Only a couple are still here. A couple of kids play near the Farinui, rolling down the hill and laughing. Over the rise, Akuya is waiting for something. Then a line of cars from the other end of the bay files down the main road, across the bridge. It looks like a tangi. The Kuya lets out a long, mournful wail, calling them on as they bring the two papaku home. If whānau come home permanently now, it's usually in a coffin. Between when my koro was laid behind the church with our nanny and the latest arrival in the Uripa, the small town of Tokomari Bay has suffered a slow death. The whenua that they are laid to rest in has sustained generations, but the soft grey-brown soil also makes the whole region prone to erosion. But the bay, and to Tairawhiti in general, hasn't been just dying. It has been killed, economically, ecologically and the communities themselves. The decline has its roots in a series of decisions, big and small, some internal, but most imposed by someone somewhere else, that go back to the 19th century. Cyclone Gabriel was yet one more event that will generate more decisions, some of which are already imposing more pain and ongoing trauma. The ferocity of Cyclone Gabriel and Cyclone Hale a few weeks before would have been damaging regardless of geography and history. But Tokumaru Bay's history and geography, and that of the whole Tairawhiti, has compounded weather events. Human decisions have amplified nature's destructive power and the land's vulnerability. Those decisions, some of which are not only in the past, but are now working through different channels, 
have the potential to further damage an already distressed environment and communities that have lived here for hundreds of years. Some of those policies will be still playing out for the next hundred years at least. It wasn't always this way. I head up Mangahawini Valley in behind the bay along State Highway 35 towards Rotoria and the rest of Tairawhiti. But again, something is not right. There are cattle yards that mark where my grandmother and her siblings grew up across the Mangahawini River. The road is freshly laid metal, but is it a new road? Because the tar steel version is down in the river, broken up and buried in silt and dead pine trees, the whole damn thing. I'm confused. Has the river taken over the road? Or did the road somehow shift? A little further along on the other side of the river is a massive gouge running down towards the river, taking grey soil, fully grown pine trees and everything in its path. It looked worse a few weeks earlier when a whole tangle of fully grown pines blocked up the river and threatened to unleash another deluge on the town after Gabriel's fury. It blocked in the town from the northern end, while a bridge to the south was blown out by water and forestry debris, isolating it completely for over a month. A few hundred metres back down the valley, Jack Chambers is parked up in his lounge. His front lawn is sodden. We're connected by my auntie Winnie, the firstborn and only child of his uncle and my grandmother Kumeroa. She went on to have ten more, including my father. Chambers grew up when Tokomaru Bay and the East Coast were still thriving. When I grew up, he says, there was something like 3,000 people living in Tokomaru Bay because of the freezing works. The freezing works for a start employed something like 400 people. And then the wharf employed a number of people and it had a huge storeroom where they kept all the wool bales or any of the goods that were coming off the boats that would be distributed to the coast. So there was a lot of employment at that time. While there was plenty of employment, the range of jobs were narrow. From the start, the Crown had definite ideas about where it saw Māori capital and labour fitting into the national economic equation. It wanted Māori capital in the form of land for British settlers, and Māori labour was always regarded as sitting at the bottom of the economy, or, more often, not wanted at all. These assumptions completely reshaped Māori society in the 19th century, with the consequences still playing out now. The land wars flared up in Taranaki when one rangitira, Te Rangitake, wouldn't recognise an individual sale to the Crown. That kicked off a resistance that spread throughout the country and culminated in Crown troops invading Taranaki and then Waikato. Sections of Ngāti Parau and other iwi rallied in support and sent groups of warriors to support Tainui. Among them was Maitipuna Tewarahi Huriwai, who was killed at the Battle of Teranga near Tauranga. The Paimarire religious political movement found adherents on the east coast, which led to the Crown threatening Ngāti Parau with confiscation through the East Coast Land Titles Investigation Act of 1866. Government Minister Donald Maclean fuelled tensions within the iwi about the relationship with the Crown and provided arms to those who were leaning towards the Crown, which turned whānau against each other in armed conflict. The rift has never been entirely forgotten, 
which Sir Apidanangata noted when farewelling C Company of the Māori Battalion in Gisborne in 1940. He said, Descendants of both factions are represented in the contingent leaving this morning, and I do not know to whom the most honour is due, whether to those whose ancestors supported the Queen or to those who opposed her. Those formerly engaged with the Crown today, on behalf of the iwi, are still eyed with suspicion in some quarters. The Crown's solution to the resistance to land selling was the imposition of the Native Land Court. Although Ngāti Parau retained significant tracts of its land, thanks to the efforts of Su Apirana and others, what was held onto was marginal and fragmented by individual titles, which made it difficult to raise capital and develop. Significant blocks were also tied up in perpetual leases, including a stretch of the main drag along Tokomaru Bay, which is locked up in a 999-year lease. Some of the best land ended up in the hands of Pākehā farmers, who set about clearing it of native forest in order to establish the only land use they knew, which was pastoral farming. This may have worked on the gently rolling plains of Waikato and Taranaki, but on the steep, soft hills of Tairawhiti, it quickly turned into a disaster as erosion became catastrophic. The native schools that were established around the same time as the native land court not only stripped the Māori language from children, but also implemented a policy of preparing them for low-skilled manual labour, particularly in agriculture. This policy didn't end until the late 1960s and funnelled Māori into employment like sharing and freezing works. This wasn't regarded as a problem in the early 20th century. The Māori population was still recovering from epidemics. Māori rates of mortality, for example, during the influenza epidemic were eight times that of Pākehā. And there were also still plenty of sheep. But the tide eventually went out on sheep. And from the 1930s onwards, the Māori population surged to a point where there were limited options in their own territories. Ngāti are impossible to understand without the colossal leadership of Sir Apirana Ngata. While certainly gifted, he was fortunate to be given a chance to exercise those gifts. Sent to Te Aote College, he and other students were encouraged by the principal John Thornton to attend university, and Ngata became the first Māori university graduate. But this trend caused some disquiet in government circles, and Thornton was pressured by the government through the Anglican Church, to desist sending Māori to higher education. He refused and eventually lost his job. Among other achievements, Ngata worked his whole life to create an economy that could sustain people on their whenua in the face of shifting government policies on Māori land and the struggle to raise capital for development. He had also worked tirelessly with leaders like Sir Peter Buck in Māori Pōmāre and Tupuya to improve Māori health, thereby halting the population decline. The latter project was spectacularly successful. The former project would have mixed results. The rapid population increase outstripped the ability of the economy that Māori had been confined to by government policy to provide enough long-term employment. Just as the Māori population was recovering, many of the younger generation would leave the shores of Aotearoa 
to fight for a crown that still regarded them as second-class citizens. Two of my grandmother's brothers, Uncle Sid and Pat, were among them. Fortunately, they returned, but it still cost them. So Apidana Ngata's logic in recruiting a Māori battalion made of tribal units was to prove to Pākehā New Zealand that they were worthy of equal citizenship. They were also following the example of an earlier generation that had filled the ranks of the pioneer Māori battalion in World War I, which served on the Western Front. Ngāti Parau paid a heavy price for that conflict too, and the beautifully carved church in Tikitiki, where my great-grandfather grew up, is a memorial to that sacrifice. C Company, which was made up of Ngāti Parau, Te Whanua Apanui, and other East Coast iwi, suffered heavy casualties. This was at a time when the Māori population was only just starting to make a recovery. It's arguable whether the Crown held up their end of the bargain. Ngata's recruitment blitz on the east coast was supported by a wahine from Tokomaru Bay, Twini Ngawai, and her protege Ngoi Pewhairangi. They formed the Kapahaka group Te Hukufetua too to help raise funds for the battalion, and the group is the oldest continuous Kapahaka group to this day. Pewhairangi went on to compose two breakthrough Māori compositions, E I Pō, sung by Prince Tuiteka, and Pō I e, which was taken to the top of the charts by Delvanius in the Pātea Māori Club. Pewhairangi also developed the Māori language learning method Ātārangi, and she was also influential with figures as diverse as historian Michael King and politician Parikura Horomia. Te Hokofitu's waiata weave through Ngāti Paro's history, from Paikia's landing to the shearing sheds of the East Coast and the exploits of Sea Company. The young men of Sea Company came back changed into a world that had changed. Many left as callow youth with a streak of mischief and came back hardened men who carried the trauma of not just losing mates, but cousins and uncles and brothers. Ngata recognised, perhaps too late, that the men who returned could not be sustained on the landholdings that were left. He told them when they reassembled in Gisborne that, quote, the gate is open, implying there weren't enough farms to absorb their labour and that the grass might be greener somewhere else. His tireless efforts to keep his people on their land started to unravel in the decade he died. But before they scattered, they were taken back to the marae along the coast. Many hadn't had time to grieve their losses and broke down when they saw photos of their cousins and uncles and brothers lined up in front of whānau who wouldn't see their loved ones have children and grow old. The trauma and grief echoed down generations as the ghosts of war are often stifled with alcohol and unleashed in violence. The pressure of large families and limited employment would also fray families and disperse them as opportunities beckoned elsewhere. Jack Chambers' father and uncle were in the 28th Māori Battalion, and he remembers a key turning point was the closing of the freezing works that had provided work for decades. He says, The works suddenly closed in 1952, and that's when the proverbial hit the fan in Toko. That began the urban drift from here, because there's no other work around. There was a huge empty out of Tokomaru Bay of people living here, that made a big impact when the urban drift came along and it wasn't too long before there was only about 500 people here. 
and today I'd say there's only about less than 200 grown-ups in Toko. The only jobs around here is the forestry. Chambers says that forestry started to take over and the sheep industry declined. From the early 1970s to the 80s, he says, forestry was introduced to our area. They grabbed farms and, to me, they sucked in our young people. They were told they could be forest rangers and all the good jobs in the forest. But that never eventuated. Pines are harvested when they're 25 years upwards. So these poor young fellas were just planting, planting and planting, and there was no future in that. Once they got sick of that, they left. But it was too late. The forestry had got what they wanted. They wanted pine trees on our land. That was the colonial cul-de-sac, land loss, land use and the devastation left behind. The first in a series of six stories called Tauraferi's Trauma. The last one runs today. It's published on newsroom.co.nz and written in red hair by Newsroom's Māori Issues editor Aaron Smale. The Details Long Read is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. We'll be back next week with another long read. Ka kite anō.